EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 12th, and I talk to Cornel Bann, an Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Boston University. Um, my name is Cornel Bann. I'm an Assistant Professor at the Partis School for Global Studies, and um, I also serve as a co-director of the Global Economic Governance Initiative um, here at BU, a think tank and research group. Tell us a little bit about your connection to Europe. Um, I'm originally from Europe. I'm I'm from the eastern periphery, from Romania. I came here for my PhD, and most of my work is on on the political economy of of Europe. I um, I started a few years ago to work on Latin America, but I got sucked into the European crisis completely. Um, and I have renounced my um, my interest in cross-regional research as a result of the dramatic events there. What is the future emerging in Europe after Brexit? It is a big uh, question worthy of uh, 20 years of research. It's going to feed us for a very long time in our uh, political economy field. Um, I, will, I, will, I will make no predictions here. Uh, I could talk to a few emerging trends. So I think that Brexit could be an opportunity for the EU to reinvent itself. Um, I think personally that Brexit is a tragic event for Britain um, and for, for British people, particularly for those who um, uh, having um, been placed at the bottom of the social pyramid will uh, bear the, the heavy brunt of the adjustment that's going to come with Brexit. So I, I, I deplore that. It was a, a tragic mistake. Um, it is also bad, uh, um, a bad thing for Europe. It's a, a large member state with you know an old democracy that is leaving. Uh, the terms on which the exit will be negotiated will um, leave a lot of scars and will take a lot of time to heal. So that said, um, I think the EU could learn from the fact that uh, one of the, the, the arguments made against it, uh, albeit not the most important one, is that the EU has had a uh, rough treatment of the debtor governments in uh, the European periphery, and that um, has been carried out with, um, with little sensitivity to the social costs in particular. If you think of the situation in Greece, where we have the example of, uh, of um, OECD wealthy country being reduced the status of um, literally a global south economy and society, um, that demonstration effect has been has been um, has been tragic. Um, now the Brexiters didn't play uh, much on that. They played on on lies about uh, the savings for the um, for the National Health Service and and the supposed uh, authoritarianism of of technocratic elites in Europe. But overall, I think Europe has to, uh, the European Union uh, elites have to learn from the fact that the kind of neoliberal uh, dimension of European integration, which is one of the main dimensions, it's not the only one. Um, there are also anti-neoliberal dimensions within within the EU project. They have to learn from from Brexit and and go back to the drawing board, and and really cut down on um, the European Union's role as an enforcer of uh, of neoliberal economic programs, um, ranging from the most uh, deleterious effects for labour by structural reforms, 
um, two uh, fiscally regressive uh, adjustments that put the burden on um, on uh, the middle and the bottom of the income distribution. So if Europe is to um, look at Brexit and say, what do we do about it, uh, other than you know, punish the Brits and, and all these statements that have been made uh, in order to discourage others from leaving. Um, I think that the real, um, the really productive answer would be to go and ask what can Europe do for, you know, the losers of globalization and uh, losers of, of technological um, revolutions. What can it do for, you know, the 20% or so levels of of youth unemployment, uh, what can it do for the for the fact that the most educated uh, generation in Europe, in their twenties and thirties, have the highest risk of uh, underemployment or uh, precarious employment, let alone that of structural employment? These are the the big questions that should should emerge. If indeed um, Europe prospered from an economic paradigm in the post-war decade that put employment at the core. Uh, that put, um, you know, social um, uh, measures that, that reduce social inequality at the core. I think Europe has to go back and, and rediscover that history. That's the real answer to Brexit. Recently, the European Commission has come up with the white paper on the future of Europe, proposing five scenarios for the future. Which one do you think is more likely to present actually the future? Europe. I think that the, um, the two-speed Europe is the more likely, albeit not the most desirable of the scenarios. If indeed, um, if indeed the future Europe should look more aligned, along the lines of the kind of embedded, uh, embedded liberalism I, I spoke about earlier on, so a more social democratic Europe. Uh, if indeed. Uh, the new Europe will put at its core not just um, fiscal balances and structural reforms, but quality employment and economic rights for its citizens. Then, um, if you look at some of the obstacles to the achievement uh, achievements of, of these objectives, we noticed that the uh, United Kingdom and, and some of the member states uh, in Eastern Europe have been against um, measures that would lead to more fiscal coordination at the EU level, that have blocked um, taxation of uh, financial transactions, would have been, which would have contributed to this um, EU fiscal pillar, uh, that they have um, promoted uh, labor deregulation and, and precariousness uh, within countries as well as across them uh, for, for uh, migrants working in Eastern Europe who are paid and uh, treated as if they are in their home countries, which undermines um, solidarity between European citizens. Um, if indeed these are the objectives, then once Britain leaves, uh, the countries such as France and Germany who um, who pleaded for, say, the Tobin tax on financial transactions and more fiscal coordination, will have an opportunity to go ahead uh, of the pack and uh, adopt this let's say, progressive measures at the EU level. Uh, and that first speed, let's call it, uh, mode of the EU engine <clears throat> will deliver um, better social outcomes. Now, the countries that will be in the second uh, gear 
having not done so, will see that perhaps uh, their social outcomes are, are worst and they will emulate them. So it's a, it's a very flexible strategy. Um, we already have a two-speed Europe in many ways. I mean, we have the Euro and the non-Euro countries, the Schengen and the non-Schengen. We have already have different levels of integration. Um, but in order to have a more, you know, a deeper level of fiscal and social integration, um, that perhaps requires the, co the cooperation of only a handful of member states from the old core, uh, with maybe a smattering of, of Eastern countries, like, you know, Slovenia, I could see it as a likely candidate uh, for joining the, the first speed. Uh, on some issues like the European prosecutor, for example, Romania joined the core. So it's not an East and West uh, uh, difference across all policy levels. Um, now, um, is this desirable from the sort of overall philosophy of um, EU integration as a project that brings all of the EU member states together in a least common denominator, right? And here the, the, the signal could be uh, depressing in the sense that <clears throat> this will institutionalize and further the opportunities for um, uh, the fragmentation of, of the member states along uh, uh, several levels. This might translate into institutional frictions uh, between various regulatory um, and macroeconomic regimes inside the EU, and we cannot really anticipate uh, what these frictions will lead to late, later on. So we open this Pandora's box uh, of uncertainties um, that might have consequences uh, that are simply impossible to anticipate at this point. Well, um, so in that sense, it depends on the answer depends on what do you prioritize the most. Do you prioritize the, um, the the achievement of superior uh, socio-economic outcomes uh, through the first speed, hoping that the second speed countries will, having seen the successes, will follow up? Uh, do you prioritize a more experimental mode of governance, whereby you place some policy experiments in one speed and some policy experiments in others, and then there's a learning curve? Uh, very much like what's happening in China between different provinces. That could be a, you know, a this competition can can lead to positive outcomes, but then a lot of people are worried about, especially in the in the east, right? They're worried about the fact that this might lead to uh, in Ireland as well, um, that might lead to um, these unproductive forms of competition, and friction, and perhaps uh, forms of disintegration that um, are predicated upon elites inhabiting different regulatory containers and 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 political containers, right? So then, you know. Um, there are risks involved on uh, on both sides. One thing, one quick thing out that here is that I do not like this um, sort of East versus West uh, new division that's that's emerging, uh, as if the new member states are responsible for the ills of you know everything that's going on. Uh, and it's with the people in power in Poland and Hungary, it's very easy to, uh, to scapegoat and to uh, to. Uh, to brand uh, the Easterners in an Orientalist uh, sort of narrative. Uh, one of the biggest problems for social um, justice, for lack of a better term, in Europe, which is a problem, this is what the, this is what the populists are, are feeding off, um, including the, 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 the right, um, is that um, we have three tax havens inside the EU. So the, one, of the, one of the reasons why we do not have the kind of fiscal f firepower to pay for better social and employment policies is that you have Luxembourg, the Netherlands or Ireland uh, enabling um, corporations and high net worth individuals to uh, decrease their fiscal footprint, thus reducing the resources available for 
for uh, for progressive policies um, in the EU that would make the EU a more legitimate, more appreciated uh, political project for the regular citizen. So, so before let's say the, the first speed countries, uh, a problem is the, themselves. I mean, it is ultimately uh, these three countries. You know, to some extent, Belgium. Uh, that are playing these games. And um, if we are to be uh, honest about it, they are as much uh, of a problem uh, for um, for a more socially progressive EU than uh, the East European uh, preference for more neoliberal regulatory policies. So I think I think that this East-West new mental border that's emerging is, is very porous and we should question it. We talked a little bit about, about populism. So the common discourse about European <clears throat> politics is mainly about the rise of populism, rise of the extremes on the right. Mm -hmm. And do you see this as a threat to Europe, to the European project? It is a, absolutely it's a threat. I mean, the, the right populists are ex very much explicit about the EU uh, being, uh, being the enemy. They In creating these frontiers that populists create, the EU is one of the one of the code words for neoliberal globalization, the dislocation of large parts of the low-skilled in their own countries. So rather than um, examine specific policy choices that led to such negative social outcomes, some of which had nothing to do with the EU, some of them were connected with the EU, so rather than have this analytical discourse, you create this very simple um, antinomies uh, from which you can extract political leverage. So they clearly do not like the EU. They will run the referenda on it. Some are explicit about getting out. Um, how can you fight this? This is this is a problem, right? And I don't expect that established European democracies will become authoritarian states tomorrow if these populists uh, are elected. But I do not like the moral equivalence uh, and the political equivalence that comes from uh, left and right populism. I think Left populism is a form of deepening democracy, whereas right populism is a, is a form of, of curtailing it. Uh, if we define democracy as the rights of minorities, diversity, pluralism, etc. Whereas the left tries to expand that definition, expand that pluralism, give more voice to more transversal categories. Um, so in that sense, um, Chantal Mouffe's uh, work, for example, is, is quite um, thought-provoking. You don't have to agree with everything she says. Um, but her argument that we live in a sort of post-democratic age and the only way to beat uh, uh, the, um, the right-wing populist anti-EU forces is through left-wing populism um, is perhaps something something to be considered. And, you know, some people are talking about Austrian social democrats in the golden age under Bruno Kreisky as being left populists and FDR being a left populist. So the idea of reappropriating the term as Podemos is doing in Spain, should not be perhaps such a, uh, such a, sc a scarecrow if the upshot is saving the EU and saving, uh, saving democracy in, in, um, at, the, at the, the domestic level. But these battles are all domestic. They have to start, you have to start at domestic level um, with these sort of progressive alliances uh, to put up uh, a fight with um, the right populists who are feeding off in many cases, very legitimate claims about unemployment and underemployment and industrial uh, wastelands and so on that are all over all over uh, Europe, including in wealthy, relatively uh, in egalitarian democracies such as France. 
To what extent do you think European citizens can affect decision-making at the local and supranational levels and determine their own futures? Hmm. So it depends on the democracy you come from. If you come over from a debtor democracy or from a creditor democracy. Uh, if you come from a creditor democracy, you have a lot of voice. I mean, certainly the voice of German citizens has been really important in how, um, how the economic crisis was governed. Uh, certainly the voice of Dutch citizens was absolutely critical. The voice of Slovak citizens has been critical in deciding you know, how the Greek or the Portuguese uh, economic crisis was governed. If you come from a debtor democracy, um, you have a vote, but you don't have a voice, as some scholars are saying. Um, and it's kind of irrelevant what your vote says in, in economic terms. So that's a very big problem, because if indeed um, we have created a governance of the crisis that doesn't rely so much on the European uh, technocracy in, in Brussels or, or um, to some lesser extent in Frankfurt. The Frankfurt technocracy actually matters more. But the really, the really important game is in the national creator democracies via the Eurogroup uh, and the European Stability Mechanism. Then, indeed, we have created this kind of two-speed democracy in Europe. Speed one, uh, the citizens with a voice in the creator democracies, and speed two, those in the data democracies. And that's a real antagonism uh, that um, is predicated upon a political choice to make, an, make it into an antagonism. The Greek crisis could have been solved differently. The Portuguese crisis could have been solved very differently. So, as we can see now, in Portugal, once they are no longer the object of this, um, this uh, Troika governance, they can, citizens can actually have a political voice. They voted for a left government that does left policies, has uh, turned its back on austerity, and uh, as long as it's not in the crosshairs of, of creditors, uh, people feel like their decisions actually matter. If you are a Greek citizen, however, uh, you feel like your vote is relevant, and, and rightly so. And that was demonstrated... Um, you know, there's this concept of, um, of markets-constrained democracy that some European leaders have come up with. That's really not a democracy. Uh, so in order for European elites to uh, ground their project into a more democratically accountable relationship at the local level, they have to make them sure that these local democratic voices do get heard and do have consequences. If not, then we really are moving into a post-democratic age, at least for the debtors. What what a Europe of your dreams look like? Oh, that's a big one. Um, well, I guess in my, in my, in my deepest fantasies, um, uh, completely, uh, they are just fantasies. It would be a, a federal project based on, on on transnational solidarities and sort of a political hegemony of a solidaristic project. Um, and to what extent that's achievable um, is anyone's guess. Right now we have um, uh, been pre uh, we have been prepped to uh, to set our software on being uh, extremely skeptical about it. But ultimately, our narratives depend, uh, decide what our political um, um, and scholarly actions are. And if we tell ourselves that the game is over, uh, then we are going to open up the stage to the people who say that the game is not over, that it's their game, and it, they may not be the people that you like the most, uh, and they may not be the people who want to have a Europe in the first place. So you, may, you can imagine a Europe that is making um, uh, that is radicalizing its democracy, that it rebalances the relationship between market and society, that is um, 
a poster child for the world in terms of environmental standards and livable cities and um, you know uh, literally creating these uh, transnational communities of good life um, that is the um, the demonstration effect that inequality is not destiny but choice that um, that makes uh, uh, that, that reduces the, the dependence of entire societies and states uh, on the decisions of financial actors that creates real competition between left and right that um, that um, is a Europe that institutionalizes uh, a relationship with memory that is not one based on on exclusion and excuses about we are not a society of immigrants therefore we have to uh, to get weird about immigration this is the Europe that I'm uh, that I'm inspired by I'd say a Europe that rediscovers uh, its um, you know its proximity to community and nature and uh, and you know uh, very progressive urbanism I mean these are things that uh, Emerged here and there in various spots, you know, the the Danes have have showed that you can have actually, actually livable cities, right? The the Spanish have showed us uh, that you can have municipal democracy. Uh, the Germans have showed us that uh, being a wealthy country doesn't mean that you don't have, you have to let go of your industry. I mean, there are all these examples, and the question is how you can turn all of this into a, into a single European project. And that should be the single European project, not like this minimalist deficit targets and fiscal compacts and so on. I'm not arguing for, for fiscal uh, profligacy here. That's not the point. But I'm arguing for a project that takes a very hard look at Europe's own problems with distribution. It takes a very hard look at the fact that Europe is enabling the massive tax optimization and tax dodging that prevent... Uh, uh, the accumulation of, of serious societal resources for investment into the future and into a sustainable future. Um, before Europe comes in into this kind of self-examination mode, um, then that kind of fantasy is just a fantasy. But think about, I don't know, uh, social democracy was a fantasy in 1890, but it was the reality in 1950. So you need to have an alternative uh, vision in order to exit this kind of uh, inferno of um, uh, differences between, uh, between, between political projects that all look the same, between uh, the fact that now we are being devoured by political extremism. And if we get stuck in this kind of uh, unimaginative universe, then we really are done for. Is there anything I didn't ask you about, but you have thoughts and you want to talk about? I think the, my, big, my big concern here is that it is harder to achieve um, that kind of Europe in a system that has made um, global money and global finance the, the ruler of uh, how many options you actually have on the table, right? So the, the feasibility of, of many... There are so many templates for the better life in Europe that I forgot their number by now. Um, people always come and ask, yes, but ultimately... You know, uh, they're going to short your debt and you're, you're lost. Your, your banking system will collapse. Your ATMs will shut down. Your own social base uh, is going to be the victim of your own projections uh, because they will lose their pensions and, and their livelihoods. So it's going to be even, more, even worse than it is now. Um, and 
there is there is a lot of of truth to that. I mean, the the power of of um, of financialization. It's not finance as an actor or finance as a set of individuals. It's a very obsolete and, and dangerous definition of finance. But finance is a system that touches our pensions. You know, we are part of my pension is part of finance, so I'm part of it. My interests are aligned with those. So, so the old politics in which you did have these antagonistic categories. You had, you know, uh, owners of capital and owners of, of labor uh, hands. You had, uh, you know, debtors and creditors. Now things are a little bit more mixed up now. Uh, and that is an intellectual challenge for for progressive projects. And I do not want to reduce progressive projects to to the left. I mean, there are, you know, there are parts of, of, of liberalism that are quite... quite uh, Quite progressive, especially on the social uh, liberal or, or social conservative front. Um, you know, the welfare state, in, to some extent, is the creation of social democratic, Christian democratic compromises in the post-war. Um, but we do live in a different um, uh, global economy in which that is heavily financialized, and that, that does put limits. It doesn't mean that we don't have a way out of it. it I'm just saying that the capacity of societies and states to coordinate in order to put those limits and harness uh, the, um, um, the profits generated into more sustainable and, and socially and eventually more humane ends. Um, it's something that's a lot more complicated now than it, than it was in the 1950s. So in that sense, the critics of this, um, this um, let's call them feasible utopias, uh, are right. It's a real provocation, and it's not enough to mobilize people around um, around progressive projects. It's also very understand to provide an alternative that has the the foot the the fine print, not just the big vision, because it is in the fine print that the devil hides, and where the crisis hides, and those crises can devour any hopeful uh, alternative very very quickly. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Thank you very much. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.